0: As we turn in our Bibles to Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. <laughs> on July 20th, 1969, Buzz Aldrin, after Neil Armstrong had had his time on the moon, descended the ladder. And he looked around and said, what a beautiful view. And then later, he, reflecting on what he saw, said, it's magnificent desolation. Now, desolation is not something you would associate with beauty or magnificence uh, because it, it speaks to loss, it speaks to emptiness. But the vastness of an untouched planetary mass object like the moon can give that sense of magnificence, untouched by humanity, and it can cause a person to stand back in awe at the magnificence of it. Now, I think others have experienced similar things when they have perhaps visited the pyramids or the Inca ruins, or maybe they've seen some of the big constructed things in Greece or Italy that have fallen down and become ruins. I can, I can imagine also the conflicted feelings that would occur when you're looking at things like that because you, as you look at them, you, on the one hand, you, you realize all the human effort to construct something that massive, that intricate, and then you see the ruins and there can be a sense of humility that occurs as you're gazing upon this, maybe by the size, maybe by the loss, from a very variety of of factors, but, uh, you know, it, it also speaks to how that a lifetime of effort and lifetime of work can be undone in just a single moment. In a single moment, a missile or an earthquake can totally level a city or a community. It's a humbling moment, and calamity is intended to be humbling. This is a This is a uh, picture of Dresden after the bombings during World War II. And you can see the leftover remains of some of the colossal effort of centuries of construction. Calamity is humbling. Being made in the image of God, it's natural for us to want to build things and to construct things because that's what God does. He, He makes, he forms, he creates And so we have this within our hearts, a desire to do these things. We've been given dominion, but dominion has its downsides. We can become filled with pride. We can become proud in our accomplishments, which can also be undone in a very quick moment. We become blind to the destructive effects of living as if God is non-existent. He is existent, and he never sends a calamity without a purpose into our world and into our lives. And in Joel 2, we are warned not to lose sight of God's sovereignty over the affairs of mankind. In our pride, we can think that we have constructed something, and even Christians can become confused about their own personal involvement in the world in which they live. God's sovereignty is exercised even in the military movements of the world. It's maybe easier for us to look at locusts and see them as an act of God, but we ought to recognize that nothing happens in this world without an express permission of our Heavenly Father. I want to read through this text. I'm going to pause at certain points, and I want to explain a few details as we read through it, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to walk through the main sections of this text. So I I do invite you to follow along. In Joel chapter 2, verse 1, we start reading, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people, their like has never been before, nor will again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. This military movement brings scorched earth. It moves like a wildfire, burning, so that what's on one side is beautiful and pristine, and as it moves through, what's left is charred remains. There is desolation on the other side. Let's keep reading about this army and its movement. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and they're like war horses. They run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains, like the crackling of the flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn uh, up for battle. And you can see the multiple use of the word like like uh, and the appearance is like. This is a metaphor, this is a, a simile, this is telling us descriptive language. These are not exact, exact, um, descriptives, but it's saying this is what it's like. And as we keep going in verse 6, it says, Before them, peoples are in anguish, and all faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge, like soldiers. They scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. They march in his path. They burst through with with weapons and are not halted. And so what you see here is an efficient military machine moving. And then you have expansions about how they move and how they do not even swerve. In fact, they, they march in line almost with like a psychological terror inflicted upon those who watch this massive movement, lockstep machine coming towards them. And it's descriptive of how they, they come in with, with efficiency, but also with invincibility and with stealth. Uh, in verse 9, it says, They leap upon the city and they run upon the walls. It's like they climb up into houses. They're stealth there, and they enter through the windows like a thief. There is an, just a remarkable, remarkable efficiency that's described here. Verse ten and eleven, are the last verses. We'll read this moment. It says, and the earthquakes before them, and the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters His voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who exo- executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Now the militaries that moved through Europe 60 some years ago created massive calamity, created massive confusion. You, you think that your life is disrupted because, you know, there's someone in the traffic flow that's going slower than they ought to, and that interrupts the flow of your day. Well, if you can't, if you can't even find food for the next five days, that's going to seriously disrupt your, your world, and that happened in Europe for many people. Very destructive, very destroy, destroying, and they inflicted a kind of tribulation, a kind of trial And it's remarkable that these things come into our lives. Now, I'm I'm going from the, the metaphor here and coming to the personal and wanting you to see how you can apply this to your heart and life. God, who controls the movements of armies, is also remarkably adept at controlling those things which create trial in your own life. And we have to ask ourselves, what is God doing and why is he allowing these trials to enter into our lives? Any kind of difficulty that God allows to us personally or to our family or to our community is, in its essence, a trial of faith. How will we look to God in these extreme points? And I want you to reflect... What trials are you personally experiencing? Are you personally experiencing trials of a personal nature between others? Do you have an unexpected shortfall in your cash flow? Is your heart overwhelmed? I want us to reflect that the world that we live in is perfectly suited for trials. And these tests to see what is in the heart of mankind. And in this text I want us to see, I want us to see how we respond to God's sovereignty in trial is more important than the trials themselves. We often have this in reverse. We get really worked up about the trial when we ought to be getting really worked up in how we respond to God brings the trial. How can I say that it's more important? Well, God is the one who rewards the faith of those who persevere through trial, those who can see through trials to see his sovereignty, his glory. When we submit ourselves to his sovereignty, we honor him by our obedience and with our faith. I don't know if you've ever stopped to consider that God holds all time in his hand and he's not in a hurry to do anything. We're in a hurry in our world. But God has more than enough time to shower upon you the reward of your faith for enduring trials. You have trials that enter into your heart and into your life which seem like they will never end. But God has all time in his hand. And he plans to lavish upon you for all of eternity the glories of his presence. But for those who reject him in the moments of trial and ultimately do not have the perseverance to respond to God by faith, There is all the time in eternity to experience the fires, the exquisite pains of hell. We think that the trials that we're experiencing now are something. If we reject God, then we will find that the trials in eternity are much worse than we ever thought. Trials that come into our lives are opportunities to reflect upon the sovereignty of God. He is sovereign over all of our lives. Now, the trials of this life may feel absolutely overwhelming. Yet, trials in this life are nothing compared to the glory that waits for us, for those who follow him regardless of the pain that they're going to experience. There is a revelation here in this text of remarkable significance. There is a progressive nature that in this disclosure about destruction that is helpful for us to to consider as we follow Christ. And I'm going to draw out five progressive points, five progressive elements that we ought to see in this text That hopefully will help us to to endure and focus upon god who is the one who gives us these trials with hope and with perseverance Uh, but as we walk through this text i want to point out first that there is a progressive nature to revealing of the word apocalypse (laughs) now you've probably heard the word the apocalypse of john maybe you've heard that term used maybe not known what it means But apocalypse simply means revelation. It's a revealing. Uh, In the book of Revelation, God is the one who unveils. He is the one who reveals. He exposes the unseen world that's happening through those descriptives. He's revealing that there is a spiritual world working behind the tribulations and the trials that are unleashed upon the world. Trials, all of them, for the moment, seem to be a thick darkness. They seem like something that they're never going to disappear, and they're of such weight to us that, that they actually provide a danger, and they also create an opportunity. The opportunity is to persevere through that trial, then to be able to look back and see what God has done to see how God has allowed this to to build you up and to make you a better uh, servant of him. But there is also a danger that if the seed of the gospel planted in our hearts does not take root, then we might slip away revealing our true nature. Apocalypse, revealing. Revealing what God intends and also revealing what's inside of us. Now, like bookends, Joel uh, references the day of the Lord, the great day of the Lord. Look at verse uh, 1. In verse 1, after blowing the trumpet in Zion, he says, Let all the inhabitants of the earth or the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Drop down to uh, verse 11. The very last phrase says, For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And Joel is highlighting, he, he suspects that it's very near, that it's close at hand. He has uh, witnessed in his own generation the locusts that have come. And we looked at that in chapter 1, in which the locusts were coming. And Joel looks at that event, and he realizes that there is... There is a a proximity here towards an even greater day, an even greater cataclysmic event that's going to come upon the face of the earth. Both locusts, both armies, both trials, they all are orchestrated by the hand of God. He wields judgment upon the earth. However, Joel is very clear here that what he is talking about Is something that is coming, which will never be outdone in the history of humanity. Verse 2 says, A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds, of thick darkness, like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will there again after them through the years of all generations." Joel sees something so significant coming that will never, ever be outdone. And this military that he sees will surpass any military known to man. That's the plain meaning of this verse. There have been some very difficult times in world history, but none are going to surpass this day. And so there is a revealing going on here. Joel is revealing to us that God has intentions to bring a, catas- a catastrophic, cataclysmic judgment in the future of which we have never seen the likes of before. There is also a progressive nature of telling this or revealing this too that I want us to see in verse 11. In verse 11 we read this, In verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army. His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. That's a remarkable statement. And I think it's important for us to recognize that in this, there is a revealing of what God is like, that maybe we might not want to accept. But it is true. He's revealing this to us, and we have to take it because he's revealing it to us. There is a progressive nature of, in Scripture in which God reveals what he's like to people. I mean, how do you know what God is like who you can't see? Unless he tells us what he's like or how we see his movements in the world. But the most clear uh, manifestation of what he's like is when he tells us what he's like. And knowing people, you know, it takes time to know people. Um, many of us uh, would like to, I, I'm, I'm watching my children enter into the age of dating, and they're wanting to get to know people. But getting to know people takes lots of time. It takes a lot of points of conversation, a lots of contacts, a lot of self-disclosure, a lot of vulnerability. It can be intimidating. It can be scary to try to get to know because you have to reveal a little bit of who you are to the other person so that then they reciprocate and open up a little bit more. But again, it's different with God because how do we see and how do we get to know him unless he tells us what he's like? Now, what God chooses to reveal about himself, it does. It occurs progressively over time. And in verse 11, there's this, 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 this just remarkable a remarkable revelation of what god is like it's his army that's bringing the destruction that's remarkable cuz when we look at evil events we think that can't be god but this is what god says he's the one who's orchestrated these things to occur that's downright scary And it's remarkable in verse 2, if you look back, verse 2, it talks about this great and powerful people who breathes out fire, who has this ability to invade like never seen before. And it's, this army is led by the Lord. That's remarkable. I think it's very common for us not to know and purposely avoid texts at times that say some pretty strong things. Isaiah 45 7 says this I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I form and create darkness, light from light, excuse me. I form light and create darkness. I make well being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. That's a humbling reality for us. It is God who leads armies out against Israel just as he was the one who led Israel out of Egypt. He is the God who protects. He is also the God who disciplines. That might be hard for us at times to take. I see in verse 3 an analogy uh, that readers of the Old Testament would pick up on. Uh, verse 3 says, fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. When God led Israel out of Egypt, there was a pillar of fire coming before and also behind. These are signals to tell Israel that the same one who guided them out of Egypt is now the one who will also discipline them. That's remarkable. And why is it difficult, though, for us to believe in God's sovereignty over evil? Why is it that we we only believe, it seems, that God will allow us to win? Why are we less willing to say, like with Job, in which he said, naked I come from my mother's womb, Naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. What did, what did Job say after that? Blessed be the name of the Lord. It may be that God intends that the trials of this life, which we experience in person, to have a revealing effect about ourselves, but also a revealing effect about him. As we are revealed, do we show forth the fruit of the Spirit in the midst of trials? Or does the testing reveal that the Spirit is not in us? That's the progressive nature of the revelation of God himself also through trials. He wants to know what's in man, and trial is one way of finding out what's in man. In verse 3, 6, and 10, we also see a progressive nature of this judgment. Progressive nature of this judgment. Um, by the time we get to Joel 2, this there's a reference to the locusts had already come. Yet now, Joel is looking at what he experienced, and nation experienced with these locusts, and now he's saying, there's something significant that we ought to realize, if that, if that has come our way, then we can also understand that if we don't turn from our sins, there is some greater destruction that is about to come. And all of these events, they prefigure the great day that is yet to come. And it can be seen in Joel's prophecy as it's laid out in three sections, and each section progresses from smaller to larger. Um, The language that's used in uh, verse 1, he talks to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to Zion, to blow a trumpet. And, and in verse 3, it talks about the fire coming towards them and burning uh, behind. And so there is this emphasis upon Jerusalem receiving the brunt of this, but it goes out beyond. In fact, uh, in verse Uh, Verse 6, it says, before them, this army, before this army, peoples, or nations, are in anguish. This is widening out, not just to the Jews, but also to Gentiles. And then we go to verse 10, and it gets even bigger. The earth quakes before them, and the heavens tremble, and the sun and the moon and the stars are darkened. This goes cosmic in its scope. And so Joel is showing us progressively through this that judgment also comes progressively, providing an opportunity, though, for mankind to repent and to rend their hearts and to turn to Christ. You know, much of the Old Testament uh, is very eloquent, it's very vivid when it talks about the day of the Lord. It, it, it communicates just, just breathtaking devastation. And so for Joel, as he looked at this, he was seeing with a dimness. And much of the New Testament actually makes up the day of the Lord as revolving around the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming to bring redemption. And we hear in the New Testament terms like it is the the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we see that, we also recognize that the day of the Lord is not just relegated to that point in the future. The day of the Lord is a special work in which judgment comes or redemption comes. Any time that God acts to reveal his glory is potentially a day of the Lord. There is progression. And there's a progression warning in these verses, too. Verse 1 and 2. Let's look at verse 1 and 2 again and see the trumpet being blown in Zion. A trumpet is blown in Zion. The second blast, which we will read later in verse 15, is a call to assemble. But this first blast in verse 1 is a call of warning. It is, it is uh, very common for bugles or at least I haven't, I don't know, someone needs to correct me if I'm wrong, but there's, there's been times where in the military, the bugle was used, I don't know if it's still being used, to signal uh, a company to go in certain directions. And uh, sometimes it was used on the battlefield, sometimes it was used on ships, sometimes it was used uh, on, the, on the actual training grounds. But historically, all that the bugle did was to communicate a very clear message. It was intended to give warning and direction. And Joel says, blow a trumpet in Zion. Because now what he's doing, he's saying, this situation that you're about to enter into is, is frantic. And there is nothing to, to compare with what is coming on the horizon with what you have experienced to this point in your human life existence. This is the big one that's coming. Blow the trumpet. This is, this is the one that we have all been waiting for. Maybe you know a little bit of the lore and stories around the Titanic, uh, but uh, Frederick Fleet was a British sailor, a crewman, survivor of the sinking of the Titanic. He and his uh, partner, uh, Reginald Lee, were on duty the night that uh, the Titanic hit the iceberg. And Fleet was the one who first saw the iceberg, and he rang the bridge, and uh, he, he called out iceberg right ahead. Now, both of those men remarkably survived the disaster, and they both testified later that if they had been issued binoculars, then they would have had enough time to have given an adequate warning to avoid the iceberg. And when he was asked, well, how much sooner, he responded, well, with enough time to get out of the way. Binoculars are not needed because the appearance of judgment is now drawing close. The dust is rising as there's movement. And through the years, there have been so many faithful faithful folks who have sounded the alarm and given the call of warning. You think of John the Baptist who standing there looking at the Pharisees and said, you brood of vipers, who warned you of the wrath to come? Stephen. Stephen was martyred. And even as he was being martyred, he, he called to his, those who were casting stones and said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You know, many have followed their Lord and Savior to proclaim a faithful message of warning and the need to turn, the need to, it's a very lonely road. It is a very isolated road, and it is hazardous to blow the trumpet because people will not like you, they will not want your company, and they will not want to pay for you. They will say, we would like to have other teachers who will give us what we want to hear. And throughout the centuries, God has raised up prophets to sound the warning, yet it is the duty of every single Christian to be sounding the warning. Not just the pulpit to be sounding the warning, but the people sounding the warning to a nation that is going astray. If our nation, if our family does not wake up, then we will reap what we have sown. God will have to bring just judgment to pass. And destruction is sown one click at a time. It is sown by one mifeprestone at a time. One euthanasia at a time. One trafficked child at a time. These we may not personally be doing, but our society is doing them. They're bringing the potential of the wrath of God to come upon our own land. Through the centuries, I said, many have thought that they were living in that end time. We don't know the day or the hour in which the Lord will come. But it is really remarkable that the New Testament, in an uncanny way, references Joel's description of locusts coming and destroying the world and armies of that sort. Joel's warning actually occurs again. It's heralded after the fall of Jerusalem, and it indicates to us that all these warnings cohere together. There is a warning that one day there will be no more warnings and the catastrophe to end all catastrophes will come. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 9, and I want you to see the the connection that John himself draws out of Joel's writing. It's on page number 1181, if you're using the Pew Bible. Revelation 9, verses 1 through 11, describes locusts summoned from the pit of hell. Power to inflict... Pain and sorrow on those who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. They're locust scorpions that that inflict mankind. Let's look at verse 1. It says And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fall from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from that shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts out of the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who had not had the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will see death and they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, and their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates of, uh, of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of chariots with the horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And they have a king over them, an angel of the bottomless pit. His name is Hebron. Excuse me, and his name is Abaddon in Hebrew. And in Greek he is called Apollyon. Joel was looking forward. John, John was also looking forward. And as he saw these things, he could, Joel could not perhaps even imagine the demonic locusts ascending out of hell, as it were, and the total devastation that will be inflicted upon humanity. Now, Joel is looking with binoculars, if you will, He's looking with binoculars into the the haze of the fog and he sees the day of the Lord as great and very awesome. John is also looking forward and seeing in the distance and he recognizes this, that no one will be able to endure it. No one will. So there is a progressive nature here in warning. What do we do with these warnings? How do we think about ourselves? How do we think about our country? How are we praying for our country? Because the truth in all of this, these movements, there's opportunity. There is also, and fundamentally most important, there is a progressive nature of mercy that's entailed here. In verse 12, if you go back to Joel with me, Joel chapter 2, Verse 11, Joel is looking at all this and saying, who can endure it? And then in verse 12, he shifts his message and says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. How do we return to the Lord? We do it with all our hearts. How do we do that? We rend our hearts and not our garments. We don't just go through the motions of, participation in a body, but we rend the heart with a heart of sorrow. We are sorrowful, and that's when we find the comfort that we desire. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There once was a man who had two sons. The younger of his sons came to his father and said, give me of my inheritance, that I might have it now to spend as I would wish, and as you know, the story goes on. The father divides up his property and hands off one piece to his younger and one to the older. And the younger goes off into a distant country, and as he's there, he spends his money, riotous living. He's very reckless, and very quickly he becomes in great need. the sa- The famine was severe. He hires himself out to f- a laborer to feed pigs. And being in hunger, he, he wanted to be fed with the, with the very husks, the pods that those pigs were being fed with. That's how low and how desperate he was. But there is another side of the story. The other side of the story is this, that there is a watchman. There's a watchman who's keeping an eye on the distance. Scripture says that while his son, coming to himself, was on his way home, the father, while he was yet a long way off, spotted him. And he gathered up his clothing and he ran towards him. I often wondered, did he have binoculars? See, we look with binoculars towards judgment. But God is looking towards us with eyes of mercy. And that beauty of that story is so shocking because the son comes mourning his own depravity. He, he, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no, wor- I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. It's a beautiful story because there's a great reversal. He doesn't deserve any of the the accolades that are put upon him and the ring and the robe and the feast. He doesn't doesn't deserve any of that. And what's remarkable is that while he was sitting with the pigs, he he remembered the gracious and merciful stance of his heavenly Father. The young man was facing in his own time the day of the Lord. He came to a point of desolation. And instead of becoming more stubborn about his own depravity, he remembered the compassion of the Lord and the mercy of his father and returned. See, the mercy of God is progressive. In a sense, there was mercy when Adam and Eve sinned. God provided for them a covering for their nakedness. He provided a way for them to have relationship with him. In time, he provided for us the Mosaic Law, to mercifully guide and provide a sacrificial system to to bring Israel along. But eventually, progressively, he sent his only begotten son to be a savior for sinners. And it was Jesus who said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who shows us the very heart of God. He's gracious, as Joel says in verse 13, Joel 2, verse 13. He's gracious, he's merciful, he is slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love. That young man experienced a severe trial. The locust ate all his resources, but he rent his heart when he humbled himself and wholeheartedly came back to his his Father. And so this all brings me back to to Joel and, and to help us to realize that trials are intended to draw us towards our Heavenly Father rather than to drive us away. How we respond to God's sovereignty in trial is much more important than the trials themselves. And to this, I want to append a couple of questions for us to consider as we close. Considering the certainty of the coming day of the Lord, you know it's coming. Why do we put off the necessity to rend our hearts? Does the certainty of like, oh, I have no condemnation, lull you to sleep. For those who are truly born again, to put off indefinitely is just not possible. You will come back. But don't play games with God. Don't play games with God. A catastrophe may reveal in the end that you never were born again in the first place. And trials, though, are God's way, his gracious way of revealing what's in you, but also revealing that he is the one that you need. Is it possible, and I'm speaking more broadly to us, have we not rent our own hearts? And is it possible that by not being sensitive to our own sin, we have not been the salt to preserve our own nation our nation is headed towards catastrophic judgment do we love others if we ignore the sin that's in our own hearts and pass over it thinking that god doesn't even notice he does notice and he wants us as believers to be salt and light in our community We need to rend our hearts. But He is gracious, He's merciful, and He will He will graciously forgive us all our sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.